Let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 9 and going through verse 16. If, if my voice lasts, maybe I'll get, you know, I'll kick in a second wind or something. I don't, is that what you say about a voice, second wind? Um, but uh, here, this is uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, and this is the word of the Lord. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall... Uh, its saltiness be restored. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Lord, as uh, we read through the Sermon on the Mount and reflect on what it means to be your disciples, we ask that you would teach us. And uh, such, uh, such a short phrase as these are that are so loaded with meaning, we pray that your spirit would come and um, open them to us, open these words, um, that, and also open our hearts to hear them so that these words would transform us and uh, make us Um, to be uh, your disciples, um, to live lives that are pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you. And uh, help us also just to see the grace that is in these words. Um, Would these words point us to our Savior Jesus? So we ask this in his name. Amen. Um, So this morning, we've been the last uh, couple weeks looking at what are called the Beatitudes, the beginning of of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And uh, we're going to be looking at the last few of those and and some of Jesus' kind of exposition. He he kind of explains some of them. And in particular, we're going to be looking at these profound, beautiful words from Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And especially what we're going to be exploring is the question, uh, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean to make peace? And, uh, you know, of course, the, the most obvious answer to that is that a peacemaker is a reconciler. You know, someone who steps into relationships, people are in conflict, and you help them come to a compromise and become friends again. So peacemakers are kind of reconcilers. Um, and it's certainly that's, that's what Jesus means here, but uh, I think from a biblical perspective, there's a much bigger idea that Jesus has in mind um, by that phrase, peacemaker. And uh, one of the things that's important to understand is this word there, the Greek word for, for peace, arene, uh, uh, which uh, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. That Jesus is saying here, blessed are the shalom makers. And the Hebrew idea of shalom, which we usually translate peace, is much bigger than, you know, inner peace or, or you know, nations being at peace with one another. Um, it is a holistic understanding of human flourishing. Um, uh, Cornelius Planiga, who's a theologian, he puts it this way. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. 
Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the, is the biblical picture of the world um, operating, human life, human relationships operating the way that God intended them to be. And so Jesus says, in these amazing uh, phrase, blessed are the peacemaker. His disciples are shalom makers. And um, actually, uh, you know, to get a sense of how big that word shalom is, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, in, the, uh, in Colossians uses this same word talking about the Lord Jesus, and he says this, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased. That's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the peacemaker, and for Jesus to make peace, he's reconciling all things in heaven and earth. He's bringing peace to his creation. So it's this massive scope of what peacemaking is. Peacemaking is God bringing shalom to all things in his creation through Christ. And that Jesus says here is that we are co-workers with Jesus in the making of shalom. And, you know, what, what does that mean? Uh, you know, I, I maybe shared with you this story. I, was in a, I had a leadership class that I took when I was in seminary. And the pastor was telling a story about when he, when he was a kid. He was kind of a troublemaker, and there was this girl in one of his classes. She was kind of the brown-noser girl who always did everything right and loved when he got in trouble. And uh, she came into the classroom, and she was working in the office, and she came into the classroom and she says, I greet her. The principal would like to see you. And uh, your father is in the principal's office. And so, uh, you know, first getting called in the principal's office wasn't that big a deal for him, but when she said that his father was there, um, terror you know, he was struck with terror. He said, you know, my, my daddy, he doesn't believe in timeouts, you know. He had a, the school called him down to the school. He's going he's gonna to kill me. He's got a bazooka. He's going to shoot me. And so he's in fear going to the principal's office, and, and he walks in, and there's his dad. And his dad says, Ike, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking you out of school for, for two weeks, and I'm going to take you with me, and, and we're going to travel around. It turns out his dad was a, a minor league uh, baseball scout. He said, uh, we're going to go to baseball games, and I'm going to take you with me while I do my scouting. He says it was two of the greatest weeks of his life. You know, he's chumming with, like, Pete Rose and all these baseball players. And he was, what he was, the purpose of the story is he was saying, you know, it was a real special thing when God, when my dad would come into my life, you know, when he'd come play baseball with me in the backyard. He'd come do the things that I wanted to do. But it was a whole other level when my dad would bring me into his life, into his business into what he does, and um, the honor, the privilege, and, and the deep joy that went with that. And what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount is the first few Beatitudes are about God coming into our life, meeting us where we are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's meeting us where we are. But at the end of the, at the, end of the Beatitudes is about God bringing us into his business. Blessed are the shalom makers, the peacemakers. He's bringing us into his work, the, the work that he's about. You know, it's like a carpenter who, who's teaching his son a trade. You know, he's like, this is my vocation. I work with wood and son. I'm going to teach you how to do this. This is going to be your trade. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are learning God's work, and we're becoming a part of it. And so... Um, I want to talk about uh, this morning, what does that look like to be shalom makers, peacemakers, um, that Jesus says are blessed. And um, I'm going to say that <clears throat> Jesus, 
says essentially three things about um, how we be shalom makers. We make shalom first by being salt, second by being light, but third ultimately by being in Jesus. So we are shalom makers by being salt, being light, but ultimately by being in Jesus. So we're going to look at those three things together if my voice makes it. So first, we make shalom by being salt. And you see that there in verse 13, what we we read, uh, Jesus says to his disciples and his crowd, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so uh, Jesus says to his disciples in this community that they are the salt to the world around them, which one thing to initially point out about this is he says, y'all are the salt of the earth. So um, he's saying to this community, he's saying to us as, as a family, as a, as a church, as a, as a group together, we are together the salt of the earth. And so as we go into this, there's some relief in that to know that, okay, to be salt, whatever that means, we're going to talk about that, is not something that's Nate's responsibility, that I need to go and be the salt to Whatcom County. It's together as a community with Christians, our church and with the other church, churches. Together, we act as salt um, in... Uh, in the world, and uh, in the ancient world, there were three primary uses for salt that I think that uh, Jesus is alluding to, to here. And the first is this, is that salt is a preservative. Salt is a preservative. So when he says, you are the salt of the world, he says, you are a preservative in the world. And so in the ancient world, you know, you have, they didn't have refrigerators. So the way, you know, if you catch a bunch of fish or you get some meat, the way that you preserved it is you coated it with salt. You know, the salt would, um, you know, absorb the, 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 uh, the, the liquid, you know, the water and, and kill the bacteria that's in, inside the meat. And so um, what you did is you put salt in places that were tending toward decay. Places that were falling apart and, you know, meat that was going to rot. And you put the salt in and it prevented decay. It, it, it held back the decay. And, um, and so um, to be salt means that we as a community do not run away from the decay in society, in families, in people's lives. We stay in it. And this um, answers a significant question for the purpose of our church. What is the purpose of this community? Why... Why did God bring us all together? Why There wasn't a church here three and a half years ago. Why did, why did God bring this together and, and create this church? And um, the reason is because there's decay all around us. There's decay, um, there's decay in, in, you know, in, our, in our, our own lives, but also in the, in the neighborhoods, uh, in the schools, in the children that are around us, in the people, in, in the work around us. There's families at risk. There's people at risk. There's people who are alone. There's people who are, who are in, uh, in, stuck in sin, lost in sin. And um, Jesus wants us, he's put salt into those places where there's de- decay to prevent the decay, uh, to, pr- to prevent things from falling apart. And, um, you know, you might say, okay, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that our church, our community has responsibility for, you know, solving the problems in Whatcom County or in Bellingham, that we're going to uh, save families that are, that are hurting, that we're going to bring things together? Are we, are we able to do that? Are we able to save people? And, well, um, the answer is no. Uh, um, you know, on the one hand, Jesus doesn't say you should go be the salt of the earth. He says you are the salt of the earth. And that's because Christ is in us. 
And so it's not, we can't save people, we can't save families, we can't rescue things, only Jesus can. But what he's saying to us is that um, we're called to show up, uh, to be present um, in places uh, where, where people are hurting, where God's shalom isn't um, flourishing, where shalom is not flourishing. We don't run away from it and say, I, want places, I only want to be in places that are healthy. We stay in places that aren't healthy. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that we're, uh, I didn't mention this in, in the announcements, you know, one thing we're going to be a part of, we're, uh, we're going to be serving some meals to some at-risk families um, in, uh, on February 21st, and then on March 7th, I think, is the, is the other, other one. Uh, home groups are going to be going. We're going to serve meals, sit and have meals with some at-risk uh, moms, families. And, you know, we're not going there saying we're going to rescue people and we're going to save people. We're just showing up and, and saying Christ is in us and I'm, I'm just going to be present. I'm going to be here. And that's what God's calling to us is salt is to be present in places where, where hurt and shalom is, is lacking. And um, that's what it means to be salt is to be a preservative. Now, you might say, okay, we just show up. That's all we do, you know. As, as Christians, we come into places that are hurting into people's lives, and we, we don't have to do anything. Aren't we supposed to really love people and serve people? Well, I think it's interesting the way what Jesus says that we need. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So Jesus says the main thing that we need as we go and we show up in hurting places is just to be salty. <laughs> and for us to be salty, the way that we're salty is, is that um, the love of Christ has captured our hearts. That we see that we are broken, um, uh, sinful people. That Christ has, has sought us out. And we've been moved by that. When we've been filled with joy because of what Christ has done for us, that's our saltiness. And if we show up as salty people, uh, Jesus uses us as shalom makers. And, um, and what happens is a Christian community is whenever, when the Christian community is filled with the awe of Jesus, it always spills over into blessing and creativity and love. That always happens. And this is the second, and that kind of leads to the second thing that salt was used for in the ancient world is not just as a preservative, but also uh, salt is a fertilizer. Actually, I, I didn't know that. that was, I learned that in a seminary class. You know, one of my professors there said that actually, I think even today in some places, I, I'm not a, I don't know much about agriculture, but that salt is used in soil as an effective um, fertilizer, which means that salt on the one hand has this, you know, in, in the, on the negative side, it prevents decay, but also it's something that's used to produce growth, to produce fruit. Um, it has this positive effect as well. And um, one of the things that you have to know and be encouraged by is that by far the greatest cultural fertilizer the world has ever known is Christianity. The, the gospel that we put our hope in is by far the most powerful cultural fer fertilizer ever in the history of the, uh, of the world. And actually, I'm just, I've been reading a book by uh, Luke Ferry, who's a, um, a, a philosopher at the University of Paris. And I, I put a quote from, uh, for, from him on page three of your bulletin, if you want to turn there for a second. Um, and in, and he, he has this book on kind of the history of philosophy and philosophical thought. And in his chapter on Christianity, this is one of the things he says. Christianity was to introduce the notion that humanity was fundamentally identical, that men were equal in dignity. This was introduced by Christianity. This is a Christian, identity, a Christian idea that men were equal in dignity. 
an unprecedented idea at the time and one which our world owes its entire democratic uh, inheritance. The idea of the equal dignity of all human beings makes its first appearance and Christianity was to become the precursor of modern democracy. And listen to this amazing statement. We see today how civilizations that have not experienced Christianity have great difficulties in fostering democratic regimes because the notion of equality is not so deep-rooted. It's an amazing statement that cultures actually, until they have met Jesus, until a culture has met Jesus, do not understand human dignity uh, to its fullest extent. That's a tremendous statement. And, and even today, cultures that haven't met Jesus. And, um, and something that we take so for granted that all people are created equal is a Christian invention, that all people are made in the image of God, and that Jesus um, sought out all kinds of people, the poor, the lame, um, all kinds of reasons that, that uh, humans have uh, degraded other human beings. Uh, Jesus lifted them up and gave them dignity. And so it's this uh, vision of humanity that's actually, it's produced hospitals, it's produced public education, it's produced uh, democracy, um, it's produced the ending of slavery. All of these things come from the presence of Christians, uh, the Christian church in a society. Tremendous uh, cultural power, and these are all evidences of shalom. So we are a part of a movement that produces shalom even in whole civilizations and whole societies just by doing what, what we're doing of, of following after Jesus. And this is because um, the Christian community is the salt of the earth. It is the fertilizer of the earth. It, it uh, produces uh, growth. Now, you might say, um, okay, some Christians have invented hospitals, invented uh, public education, and uh, done many great things culturally, but, you know, what does that say about us? We're, uh, you know, I'm not going to invent, you know, make some huge cultural contribution, but, um, you know, let me just to encourage you, encourage you that we are all part of this fertilizer that, uh, that Christianity is. And, and if you take the example of how slavery has ended um, in the West, um, one of the most important cultural developments of the planet, I put another quote from you, sorry, these are long quotes, I know, but, um, but they're so good. Um, this is from Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark was a professor at the University of Washington for 32 years in the, uh, history and religion. And this is how he describes how, how the ending of slavery uh, began in the West. When no one while no one would argue that medieval peasants were free in the modern sense, they were not slaves, and that brutal institution had essentially disappeared from Europe by the end of the 10th century. And listen to this amazing statement. Slavery ended in medieval Europe only because the church extended its sacraments to all slaves and then managed to impose a ban on the enslavement of Christians and of Jews. Within the context of medieval Europe, that prohibition was effectively a rule of universal abolition. With slaves fully recognized as human and Christian, priests began to urge owners to free their slaves as an uh, infinitely commendable act that helped ensure their own salvation. This is an amazing statement. You think, the way that slavery ended, and actually this, is, this had huge ramifications later in, in the Americas, is at this table right here, the sacraments, is that Christians said when we come together, slaves and free people are going to eat this meal at Jesus' table. He invites them both to come. And if you're going to share this meal together, you better not enslave the brother that you're, that you're eating this bread and drinking this wine with. 
This simple act that we do every week that you think is a small thing, you're just eating a piece of bread and you're communing with Jesus and and he's building up your faith, is tremendous cultural fertilizer. (laughs) And and we are, are, are participants in that, that this gospel is so powerful, it's so simple, it's so small, it's a little seed that when it's planted into a society, it transforms it. And so um, what he's saying is what we're doing as a community is uh, we're both pushing back the decay, preventing the decay, but we're also a part of a movement that actually transforms societies. And we're a part of that. But you might say, okay, um, I get that that's something that maybe the church as a whole does in societies, but what, you know, how does that impact my week, my life? How, do I, how am I salt in Bellingham and uh, in Whatcom County? Well, the third use of salt um, that is maybe the, the, the one that Jesus is most pointedly uh, speaking to is that salt is also a seasoning. Salt is also a seasoning. And, uh, you know, something that I, I think is interesting about salt is, you know, if you cook, you know, if you're cooking chicken, generally um, the chicken should not taste salty. The purpose of the salt is not to taste the salt. The purpose of salt is to taste the chicken more. The salt brings out the flavors of, of other things. And that one of the things that we do is that we go into society and, you know, the people around us, uh, the coworkers that we have, the family members we have, they have a certain flavor to them. You know, they have certain potential in them. There's, they reflect the image of God in certain ways. So they have a certain color to them. And what we're called to do is to bring out those colors out of people. And, um, you know, I think this has huge ramifications for, you know, like workplaces. Um, there's two different ways that you can run a business or run an office. There's the pagan way and there's the gospel way. The pagan, you know, what do pagan gods do? Pagan gods are continually demanding greater and greater sacrifices from their people that never quite appease them. And they make these very high standards to say, okay, you need to, if, you, if you're going to appease my anger, then you better do uh, more and more for me. And this is how pagan gods get things out of people. And you can run a business that way. I'm going to create a, a culture of fear where I'm going to extract more and more work out of people, um, uh, and they never, they never meet my demands. But then there's the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel still says that God has very high standards for us. But how does he um, bring that out of us? How does he draw those standards out of us? Is he sends Jesus to come below us and who begins to lift us up and, uh, and forgives our sins and pours himself into us and loves us and believes in us and, um, and, and walks with us and disciples us and teaches us and lifts us up. And um, this is a whole vision. You can run a business that way. If the way that I'm going to get the standards out of people is a gospel method or a pagan method. And some of you have been in workplaces like that, that some workplaces, are, there's, a, there's a whole culture of fear. And in other workplaces, um, there's, a, there's a culture of building up and pouring into and believing in people and, and standing for people. And this is what we're doing as salt, is, is salt is seeing the potential in people, seeing uh, how God has gifted them, and I want to draw that out. I'm going to encourage people. I'm going to draw that out of them. And you know how, you know, in a work setting, your work culture is your life. I mean, so many people, and you ask them, how are you doing? How's, how's your week been? What are they going to tell you? How things are going at work? And if it's a miserable environment there, their life is miserable. And so being salt, this is, I think, a, an amazing image. 
Salt does not serve itself. Salt serves the food that it's bringing out the flavors of. And so this is, this is what Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world to do, is that we see what the gospel has done for us, and it shapes everything we do. It shapes how we raise our kids, how we treat our neighbors, how we run our offices and, and our work and do our business and treat our coworkers, um, how we teach, how we are a coach on, on the sports team that we're in. Um, all of these things, um, the gospel shapes. And what we see in particular is that when God saw that we were lost sinners, he did not scrap us. He did not just throw us aside. He actually, he saw the potential that we could be in Christ. That if Christ died for us, what we could become. And because of that potential, uh, he came and he, and he drew that out of us. Okay? So first, um, that's, that's my, my first large point is um, we, are, we make shalom by being salt. Um, as a preservative, as a fertilizer, and as a seasoning. Rich imagery that the Lord Jesus gives us. But um, much of what I just said, <laughs> someone could say, I, I like all that. You know, pushing back the decay, cultural fertilizer, human dignity, um, seeing potential in people. You know, I, great, let's do all that. Why do I need Jesus and the Bible and God to do all that? Can't I do all that without, <laughs> you know, the gospel and all this religiousness? And um, I think that the second image that Jesus gives us um, uh, shows um, that uh, it'd be impossible uh, that we would be completely missing the point if, uh, if we tried to be salt without having Christ at the center of, of what we're doing. And this is the second point, is that um, we make shalom not just by being salt, but also by being light. We see that there in verse 14, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And it's an amazing statement. Um, he says that you all sitting here are, um, are the light to the world, and actually you're so bright, actually. And notice, he's not saying you should be the light of the world. He says you are the light of the world, and that it's so radiant that um, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, the light that is in you cannot be hidden, it, that, is, that, is, uh, that God has put into you. And um, it also suggests that the world is a dark place and that your presence um, brings God's light into the world. But what does that mean, um, that we're bringing God's light into the world? Well, a couple things. First, being lights in the world means that we tell the world what God is like. We tell the world what God is like. And uh, the reason for that is because the image of light in the Bible is an image of God's truth, right? So, you know, the psalmist says... Uh, your word is a lamp unto my feet. The word of God, the truth of God, is, uh, is a picture of God's truth. And um, something that, you know, we have to understand is our community, our, our calling in Bellingham and Whatcom County is um, to speak of who God is, to, to tell the world the true story of the world. That we are the storytellers of the world. That God has sent us out into the world to explain to the world what the world is all about. That you know we are living in God's artwork. That this creation is God's handiwork. And that humanity, the reason that everything's gone wrong with humanity is because we're in rebellion against God. And yet he sent his son as a rescuer to draw all people back to God. And that God is going to restore all things. This is the, this is the, the, that's the storyline that we are telling. And that explains people's lives. You know, as people um, are asking questions about their lives. Why is my life so broken? Um, why do things not work out? Why do I have such longings inside of me that nothing in the world seems to satisfy? We're the storytellers. 
and it brings light and explains their life to them. And, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis has a famous quote that I, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That um, we have the truth that explains everything. It's like when the sun rises and we begin, we don't just see the sun, we see trees, we see colors, we see mountains, we see people. And uh, we have the story. So first, being light is we're explaining the world to people, and that's what brings shalom. But the second thing is that not that we just tell the world what God is like, but also we show the world what God is like. And uh, you see this here in verse 15. This is kind of what Jesus is highlighting. Nor do pe uh, people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, this beautiful statement, people will see your good works and it will lead them to worship. Um, people are drawn to the love of Christ. And, um, you know, actually this statement, you know, he says, people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is actually Jesus describing what it means to be human. Because, you know, in the beginning of the Bible, when God created humanity, he said that you are made in the image of God. Which means that what it means to be human is that you're an angled mirror. And that the, per the reason God created you is that in some unique way, you are supposed to reflect to the world what God is like. And so sin has come into our lives and we, uh, you know, that the image of God has been uh, marred in us. And yet, um, what Jesus is saying is what he's restoring in us is that image so that people will see our lives. And when they see the love that we have for people, the love we have for the Lord and for each other, they will be seeing what God is like. They will be beholding his glory. And I think that um, it's very common, and it's probably common for many of you, that the way that people become Christians is that they see God's life in other Christians. They, see, they meet a Christian and they say, why, why did you love me? Why were you generous with me? Why were you patient with me? Why did you, you know, I, I did something so wrong to you and I cut you down and you let it go. Why did you do that? And of course the answer is because of what Christ has done in my life. And so our lives show people the character of God. Um, and what that tells us is that everywhere that we are, um, uh, God has put us there to be salt and light. We don't need the mission to be Jesus' disciples. We don't have to go somewhere else. We don't have to go away from our workplace or our neighborhood. Wherever we are, the relationship that we already have, or maybe even your family, is where God has called you to be salt and light already there. Now, um, there's one other thing that we need to say. I'm sorry, I got, I got about a page left, just to give you a heads up, okay? Uh, this is the feeling a little longer than I was anticipating. Um, the um, one other thing to say about light is that on the one hand, light, when Jesus says you are the light of the world, light, you know, is, it radiates, it's beautiful, it warms, it draws. But the other thing about light is that light exposes Light exposes what is, is uh, hidden in the darkness. And so um, what happens is that the Bible, um, as we are the light of the world and we show the world what God is like, and they see um, God's life, they see God in our life, they will at the same time feel more acutely that God is not in their life. On the one hand, that could draw them and they say, I want what you have. Or on the other hand, it might repel them. 
And so light has this double quality of drawing people to it and also repelling people. And this is what, exactly what Jesus says in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of, uh, of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says that if we are going to be lights in the world, it will, it will have a warm, you know, relational effect, but it will also have a repelling effect to some people. You know, as the Apostle Paul says, we are the aroma of, of life to those who are being saved and the aroma of death to those uh, who are perishing. And what Jesus, what's interesting here in this, Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you um, and, and when people revile you, rejoice and be glad. He's actually explicitly forbidding us from self-pity. Is that when we go into the world and people mistreat us and they cut us down, they say, you're such an idiot for be- being a Christian or you're, you think you're holier than thou because uh, you, know, you, know, you don't want to do what we want to do. And uh, that whole attitude, he, Jesus says, you, you are forbidden to fall into self-pity and say, why is everyone hurting me? Why is everyone so mean to me? No, what, he's saying, what did you expect? That's what they did to me. If you're going to share in my life, you're going to share in my death too. And, um, and, but one of the things that we need to, uh, and actually, it's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, the first commandment, there's, so far, there's hardly been any commandments. This is Jesus' law that he's giving to his disciples, and there's no commandments. It's just, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. He's just blessing, blessing, blessing. He says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He's not telling you to be it, he's just telling you what you are. The first commandment comes there where he says, rejoice and be glad. That's his first commandment. When people are mistreating you, rejoice and be glad and remember your reward in heaven. Now, um, it's important, though, that we as Christians are aware that Christians um, are reviled or mistreated on the one hand because they are the light of God in the world, but also they can be reviled and persecuted simply because they're annoying and obnoxious. And that's something that we always have to be guarding against of why, you know, why are people mistreating us? Maybe, you know, maybe I'm being brash or abrasive. Uh, maybe I'm being pushy. Um, maybe I'm getting in people's business. It's not my business. And uh, maybe I'm not reflecting God's kindness and gentleness and patience. You know, uh, uh, Churchill has a great uh, quote where he says, a fanatic is someone who won't change his mind and won't change the subject. You know, <laughs> I've had some of that in my history. So, you know, as someone who won't change his mind and won't change the subject, maybe that's you. Maybe that's why people are getting angry at you. And so what's the difference? Why is it that some Christians are, are reviled and persecuted and repelled um, because the light of God is in them and people are encountering the truth of who God is in others because they're, they're self-righteous and uh, they, they are pushy and they are abrasive? What's the difference? And this is the third point where I'm just going to say a few things about is that we make shalom by being salt. We make shalom by being light. But lastly, we make shalom, we make wholeness in the, in the world around us by being simply in Jesus. By being in Jesus. And um, the... Um, hold on, I already said that. Um, okay. Uh, Jesus is not primarily telling us in this passage what to do. He's telling us who we are. 
right? I've already said that. Blessing, blessing, blessing. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's not, he's not giving us commands. This is not loaded with commands. He's pronouncing this is who you are. You already are. If Christ is in you, this is who you are. And, um, and it's amazing that he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. They haven't even done anything yet. <laughs> They just met him. He hasn't sent him out on missionary journeys. He hasn't, uh, you know, they haven't started church planting. They haven't started evangelism, doing any healings. They haven't done anything. And they already are this. How, how could they possibly be the salt of the earth and the light of the world when they haven't done anything? And the answer is because Jesus is all those things. They are the salt of the earth because, of, because Jesus is the salt of the earth. And actually, um, as I said earlier, Paul says that Jesus is the shalom maker. He's made shalom through the cross. Um, Jesus is the one who's persecuted, reviled, who's rejected. He's the one who secured our reward in heaven. And Jesus even says in John chapter 9, he says, I am the light of the world. And so how do we become salt and light in the world in a way that is not pushy and obnoxious and self-righteous? How do we do that? It is by realizing that ultimately I'm not the peacemaker, I'm not the salt or the light that Jesus is. Jesus is all these things. And I can't save people. I can't argue people into our, uh, worshiping God. Only Jesus can save them. And when I realize that he is those things, he is the shalom maker, he is the light of the world, that gives me a deep humility. And, um, and that I, I am a peacemaker only because I am in, I am in the true peacemaker, Jesus. And then people will be drawn to his light and they will see our good deeds and they'll give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Lord, such um, rich words, and I know I've only touched on them, um, the truth that is here. I pray that we would uh, behold your light uh, we, would, we pray that we would be a test case of you making peace, making shalom, that you would make shalom in our own lives and in this church. And because you've made shalom in our lives, we uh, would become agents, co-workers with you in making shalom in our neighborhoods and in our community. So uh, teach us, uh, transform us, and fill us with awe of who you are, our Lord. We thank you for these pronouncements on who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.